All right, plane, 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 plane. Cuban bunker, Russian bunker, munitions dump, troop tents. Machine gun bunkers here, 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 and here. Back here by the drive-in screen are your political prisoners. All right, we'll cause a diversion over here. Cut holes in the wire here. Fire on all these machine gun positions. The B group comes across this area in a flanking maneuver, and when you reach this bunker, you lay down grazing fire in this defilade. I think that's pretty simple. Anybody got any questions so far? What's a flank? A defilade? Yeah, what's grazing fire? Plenty of drink. saw it on linden street the show dedicated to the joy of finding and appreciation in cult films exploitation oddities beloved classics and all points in between i'm your host chris roberts inviting you to join us here at the linden street cinema experience theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past if you're new to the show thank you so much for joining us this isn't your standard film review. Rather, it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection, with a little bit of background thrown in on the actors, information on the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job right, perhaps you'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and hey, I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review, subscribe. This week, we are closing out our month of strangeness that we have dubbed Acceptable in the 80s. That's been our take on some films that may raise an eyebrow and give us pause if we were to make them again today. And what better way to wind that down than by discussing John Milius's amazing, fun, cult action classic, 1984's Red Dawn. Join us! I had initially saw this week's movie back when I was around 13 or so. And for the record, I loved it. It initially was screened as a late-night TNT Saturday night film. I was up late watching Monster Vision. Everybody else in the house had gone to bed, and I was already wrapping up watching uh, Big Trouble in Little China, I believe it was, which, future episode for sure. And instead of calling it a night, I just sat there and watched the next feature that was coming on. I'd never seen it before. It was some war movie with American teenagers fighting against an invading army of Soviets. For the record, it melted my brain. I ended up staying up till about 2 a.m., taking in the Ratatat action, and then I spent the next day obsessing about it and how I was going to talk to my friends at school. Just was a fact. Red Dawn rocked. And the love for that little gem, that stayed with me through the years. We would watch it in college. It was a great background movie to just throw in when there was nothing else good on. And then later, back in the day, my friends and I, back when it was still brand new, we would play Gears of War online. And man, in the cross-chatter, when we were exchanging dialogue, this film would be endlessly 
quotable um, and was used ad nauseum. Uh, some some great ones would be thrown out there. We we were fond of. I got some heirlooms for you. Jeez, what's up your ass? All that hate's gonna burn you up, kid. I'm just gonna stay here and listen to the wind a while, okay? Boy, say you and me are friends, so we will not die alone. And of course, the timeless last words to be shouted out, especially when you're about to be executed by the opposing team. Boys, avenge me! It was endlessly quotable, and truly those were simpler and uh, happier times. Now, I know, once again, I'm going to be giving short shrift to the great John Milius here. And again, that's only because I want to hold off so I can give the man his proper due. But at least for the sake of putting us all on the same page, Milius at this point in time, by 1983, he was having a real career high. He had just finished having a massive box office success in making Conan the Barbarian in 1982 with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And he had already been in the business almost 15 years as a well-regarded script doctor, director, and producer. He was perfectly poised to make an action film of his choosing. And that's where we're going to start our tale. So how did this film come about? Well, oddly enough, former MGM vice president and well-known author Peter Bart would look back on the creation of Red Dawn as a great example in his mind of a good idea gone bad. You see, it started with a little film treatment that was penned by one Kevin Reynolds, director of our previous entry this month, The Beast, and the man who would go on to direct Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and Waterworld. Bart was himself intrigued by the story that Reynolds had penned. It's a little thing that was set in the near future. It was about an invading force of Russians and Cubans that end up infiltrating the southwest of the United States. And it forces a group of some Ted-odd kids to take to the wilds and form into a band of guerrilla fighters. Okay, okay, sounds good, but there was some um, <clears throat> logic behind it. You see, over the course of Reynolds' initial script treatment, which was entitled Ten Soldiers, the teens involved would continue to change and turn on each other, which then would make it a reflection that there were no real winners in war, coupled with sort of a Lord of the Flies feel. So, yeah, there would be action, but it was action with purpose, and that purpose was a social commentary and it had undertones of, well, you know, anti-war. The project itself was optioned by then-producer Barry Beckerman, who pitched it to MGM, and that's when Bart got involved, kicking it up the line to then-studio exec Frank Yalblins. Now, Reynolds wanted to direct. He wanted to bring his script to the big screen. It was going to be his first picture. But nobody, at least nobody aside from Peter Bart, as he would tell it, was really willing to give him a shot. They wanted a more seasoned director to be at the helm. And here is where the slippery slope of change kicked in. The studio brass under Yoblins started to get ideas. And that's when MGM execs decided that they were going to bring in some outside help. It also didn't help matters that former four-star general and 
Reagan Secretary of State, Alexander Haig, was a member of the MGM Board of Directors at the time. To him, this was a prime shot to get himself into the movie biz permanently as a new civilian position. Teen movies these days were hot. People are loving what Stallone is doing with those Rambo sequels. Why don't we ditch this anti-war message and we'll give this over to director John Milius. He's a renowned lover of both war and war films. How could this go wrong? Now, Milius himself had actually enjoyed reading Reynolds' script as it had been, but he was equally excited by the chance to revise and rework the script into something he wanted, taking ideas from Haig and some conservative think tank members from the day. The anti-war, smaller film that was thrown out. Now what you have here is a pro-war, pro-American, anti-communist, purely jingoistic propaganda film. One that eliminates the group conflicts between the American guerrillas and focuses purely on an us-versus-them nature of trying to repel invaders from their homeland. It was Haig's influence that added in more involvement from players in Central and South American countries, like Mexico, Guatemala, and Nicaragua, being overtaken in this near-future scenario by hard communist regimes during a fictional collapse of NATO and then a series of economic disasters that had followed. All things that Milius himself loved, but even the director had to give pause. You see, MGM had wanted him to create this new movie that could be made much on the faster side so they could have a release as a summer blockbuster for the following year. And Haig's suggestions, they would go on to triple the budget from $6 million to $18 million, which would force Milius to have to cut out a lot of the futuristic side of the conflict and focus instead on grounding the story in a more present day, which would also force production to have to film over the winter months. Milius used a mix of hot, brat pack talent of the day and brought in established character actors that he had worked with on previous projects. Originally, both Charlie Sheen and real-life brother Emilio Estevez were going to play the respective roles of Matt and Jed Eckert. But Estevez was forced to drop out due to other commitments, and that older brother role was filled by Patrick Swayze, who had previously worked with Milius when he was producing Uncommon Valor with Gene Hackman that would come out that same year of 1983. C. Thomas Howell was casted as Robert Morris, and Darren Dalton was cast as the character of Daryl Bates, which created with Swayze a mini-Outsiders cast reunion, especially with the inclusion of William Smith, who played the role of Soviet Colonel Strelnikov. Leah Thompson and Jennifer Grey were each cast as the Mason sisters, and Brad Savage and Doug Toby were cast as Danny and Arturo, a.k.a. Aardvark, Montdragon, respectively. Veteran character actor Powers Booth was cast in the role of the older and wiser Lieutenant Colonel Andy Tanner. He's an Air Force pilot who gets shot down and he helps organize this teen group into a united guerrilla force. Which is rather interesting when you stop to consider that Patrick Swayze here is 31 at the time, and Booth, who's playing the older wiser role, he's 35. Milius brought in some of his favorite character actors they had worked with previously, Harry Dean Stanton, Frank McRae, and Ben Johnson, all of whom had worked with him when they made the movie Dillinger. 
that's going to be a future episode pick for sure, back in 1973. Throw in Ron O'Neill, yeah, that's right, Superfly himself is showing up here, as the conflicted Colonel Bella, and then throw in Lane Smith. And what you have here is a really solid cast, perfect for some action drama. And that's not to say that they didn't have some problems when filming. You see, filming began in November of 1983, and it lasted through February of 1984. You have a cast that are filming out in the mountains and the high plains of both Nevada and in New Mexico in the dead of winter. Now, before filming, the cast was put through boot camp to learn how to work and act as a unit, learning how to properly live-fire real weapons in order to create the authentic look when they had to handle prop ones. The conditions they were under were rather harsh. They forced the cast to film scenes in temperatures that often dipped below zero degrees Fahrenheit. As C. Thomas Howell would famously quip some 20-odd years later, hey, you know it's cold when you spend the night spooning Charlie Sheen for warmth. For some of them, like Leah Thompson, filming this movie was remembered as some of the most fun she had ever gotten to have on a set. But for others, there was a little friction. Milius would often relay his directions through Swayze to then have the actor pass his word on to the cast, and that did not bode well for some, which caused a lot of tension between Swayze and his fellow actors. A subplot that highlighted a love between Swayze's Jed Eckert and Jennifer Grey's Tony Mason that ultimately was never filmed, in no small part due to the fact that the two actors did not get along well on set. Jeez, just think if they had made a movie together where there was no action and it had to just be about romance. <laughs> yeah. Likewise, another romantic subplot was filmed, but ultimately scrapped. That occurred between Thompson and Powers Booth's character. Thompson was actually rather upset that they removed it. She was very excited to have shot a love scene, and she wanted to work with Powers Booth. But, you know... Test audiences were a bit squeamish when they got to sit down and be treated to a film where you have a man who's clearly supposed to be in his early to mid-40s pairing off with a 16-year-old girl. Probably for the best that that got 86 There were other issues as well, though. You see, Milius was having a lot of fun on set, playing around with the prop tanks, picking up and goofing around with weapons, acting like, well, honestly, John Milius on a war movie set. But that led to all the actors involved, uh, particularly Howell, Sheen, and Booth, being a little disappointed with how the material was being handled and with how Milius was kind of conducting himself. Booth, especially for his part, thought Milius had gutted the way his character was initially written, taking out this man who's conflicted and doesn't really want to take part in this futile war that he sees himself being forced to serve in, and instead he was just turned into this stock soldier type character. All that said, even with the disagreements and on occasion onset issues, the cast members unanimously praised Milius himself, even when they didn't see eye to eye with the director. Now, the setbacks 
also included um, filming the initial invasion scenes. 35 stuntmen were dressed up in full Russian paratrooper gear, and they were dropped to be filmed over the desert outside of Las Vegas. Now, out of those 35, five of those men were blown over a mile off course during filming, causing injuries as they landed in trees and on barbed wire fences, or they became entangled in each other's shroud lines, something that Milius was warned about before the jump by the jump masters in charge. They were very concerned about both the weather and the size of the drop zone site, as well as just the lack of helmets for the men that were doing the stunts. You can't wear helmets, you're Russian paratroopers. Oh, and once more, something that shouldn't be considered very shocking. You have a group of men who are dressed as Russian paratroopers who are landing and then injuring themselves on private property during the height of the Cold War in the 1980s. This caused issues with the local authorities as they had to try to convince these poor folks that they indeed were not really an invading force of Russians. They were instead stuntmen and actors trying to shoot a movie. Actions like that, coupled with the death of a parachutist on the set of another film, The Right Stuff, that came out that same year, that would end up causing the movie industry to have to change its guidelines for safety when filming air stunts, which is good, but sadly it took a death to make that happen. On top of all that, the sleek, futuristic helicopters that were supposed to be designed to be used for this film... This movie was supposed to take place in the distant, distant year of 1989. Those ultimately were not approved to be flown by the FAA, so they had to use the same setup that they used for Rambo First Blood Part 2 to create the Russian hind gunships that we get to see on screen, which was much to Milius' displeasure. He wanted his cool, futuristic chopper. In spite of all this, the cold, the jumps, the hardware, Milius was able to get the film in the can ahead of schedule and under budget. Normally, something that would be celebrated. But there was another problem here that was beyond his control. Ironically, somewhat caused by his friend and fellow director, Steven Spielberg. movies were Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Gremlins. Both were released in 1984, and both were associated with Steven Spielberg, although the latter was directed by the great Joe Dante and only produced by Spielberg. Still, each of those films was causing a great stir amongst parents in America. You see, both were released in theaters with the then rating of PG. But they contained rather intense scenes for the children who were flocking to the multiplex to take in what they thought would be some adventure and fun, or a friendly family holiday offering, who were not in the proper mindset to see some casual heart extractions, as you got with Temple of Doom, or death by blender violence, like you got with Gremlins. The MPAA was stuck. They were trying to self-regulate before protest groups would get the government involved. And once again, President Jack Valente found himself trying to overhaul the rating system to keep outsiders from spoiling Hollywood's good time. Taking a suggestion from Spielberg himself, the director said, hey, you should really just create a new rating, something that would be designated to warn parents that the materials would be inappropriate for children, maybe under the age of 13, but it would not equal the kind of hard fare you would find with an R rating. 
making it clear that this would be a film that couldn't just be taken in by mass audiences. Dubbed PG-13, it would be a rating that would go into effect on July 1st of 1984. Thus, Red Dawn, with its runtime of 114 minutes, and clocking in with 134 instances of violence per hour, or if you would rather, I could break it down like this. You have 81 on-screen deaths of Soviet soldiers, 22 civilian deaths, and 7 guerrilla deaths. It would become the first film in history to qualify for this newly minted rating, even though it was not initially designed to be rated PG-13. Can you even imagine this film listed as PG? Ha! Dogpiling on that, a week before the film was set to make its debut, a horrific mass shooting occurred in a Californian McDonald's fast food restaurant, which caused MGM to quickly decide, for sake of good taste, they would cut a scene out where a bunch of heavily armed occupying Russian soldiers were shown entering into a McDonald's brandishing AK-47s to eat their lunch, all while Soviet tanks would drive up and down in front. Again, all this was caused by factors beyond the filmmaker's control, but understandably, MGM did not wish to look tone-deaf and insensitive in the face of a public tragedy. But, folks, I'll tell you this, you've been ever so patient in sitting here and listening to all my bloviating. How's about I shut up and we get to that trailer? What do you say? This is the emergency broadcast system. We are under attack by conventional forces of the Russian army. It is believed the lead waves were disguised as commercial charter flights. Communications have broken down in other parts of the country. Large areas of the Midwest may have been overrun. Who all of you are they're looking for you. You're 40 miles behind enemy lines. I just want to go home. I took a lot of people away. Where's my dad, Director? I just love somebody, Andy. I'm gonna die before it happens. They're gonna kill us. So why should we be different? Because we live here! Not bad for a bunch of kids, huh? Mama'd be real proud. future of the late 1980s, we're treated to an opening prologue that states, the Soviet Union suffers the worst wheat harvest in 55 years. Labor and food riots are in Poland, and Soviet troops invade. Cuba and Nicaragua reach troop strength goals of 500,000, and El Salvador and Honduras fall. 
Green's party gains control of West German parliament and demand the withdrawal of nuclear weapons from European soil. Mexico is plunged into revolution. NATO dissolves. And the United States stands alone. On a bright September morning in Calumet, Colorado, the students of the local high school are stunned as paratroopers rain down from the sky into the practice fields behind the school, opening fire and killing some of the first people they encounter, both teachers and students. Matt Eckert, as played by Charlie Sheen, and his friends Robert Morris, as played by C. Thomas Howell, Daryl Bates, as played by Darren Dalton, and Danny, as played by Brad Savage, and Arturo, a.k.a. Aardvark, Doug Toby, flee to the parking lot, where they're picked up by Eckert's older brother, Jed, as played by Patrick Swayze, who spirits all of them out of town. The boys do stop at Robert's father's sporting goods store, and under the direction of Mr. Morris, as played by Ray Jensen, they supply themselves with guns, camping supplies, and food, before fleeing up into the mountains to hide in the wilderness until all of this, quote, blows over. After a month of hearing nothing, Jed, Matt, and Robert end up sneaking back into town, looking both for information and supplies. They learn that the town is now under control of one Colonel Bella, as played by Ron O'Neill, and he is part of the joint Cuban, Nicaraguan, and Soviet forces who are occupying the United States. The trio learns that their parents have been sent to re-education camps, and they sneak over to the fence line to have a conversation with Matt and Jed's father, Tom Eckert, as played by Harry Dean Stanton, who greets them warily with a bloody nose and a sad, sad disposition. Boys? Daddy? Jed? Daddy? Don't talk, don't say anything. Let me look at you. Yeah, I knew I was right. I knew it. You're alive. I was tough on both of you. And I did things that made you... That made you hate me sometimes. But you understand now, don't you? What happened, Dad? What... Why are you here? What'd they do? Doesn't matter. One way or another, one reason or another, we're all gone. It's all gone. Remember? Remember when you used to go in the park and play? And I used to put you on the swings. And both of you were... Damn little cat. I remember, I remember all of it. Well, I ain't gonna be around to pick you up when you fall now. Both of you gotta take care of each other now. I'll never see you again, Dad. Yes, you will. I don't want to hear that, Maddie. What happened to Mom, Dad? Where is she? to be crying anymore now. I don't want either one of you ever, ever cry for me again. 
Don't ever do it. Not as long as you live. Where's my dad, Mr. Eckert? I don't know, son. Go get going now. Get out before they find you. I love you. I know you do, son. I love you too. The group ends up seeking shelter and answers from the kindly Masons, as played by Ben Johnson and Lois Kimbrell. They're a friendly older couple on the edge of town who fill them in on what's been happening and try to comfort the boys, especially after they share that the local garrison has been searching for them, and they regretfully tell Robert that when the occupiers learned that Mr. Morris gave the boys guns and supplies, they publicly executed him. Mr. Mason insists that Jed and his group will always be welcome in their home and that they could be counted on for help at any time. He does request that Jed take his two granddaughters, Tony and Erica, as played by Jennifer Gray and Leah Thompson, with them, already afraid for their safety after some Russians have attempted to sexually assault them. The group continues to survive out in the woods until they're one day forced to defend themselves and kill a small group of Russian soldiers who are on leave sightseeing, taking their weapons and then starting to actively attack the occupying forces, tagging their attacks with the Wolverines logo that they got from their high school mascot. In retaliation for the Wolverines' actions, the boys' fathers are publicly killed, much to the horror of the group. But Jed, in full rage, gives the group his version of a pep talk as to how to deal with all of it. Don't try! Pull it back! Let it turn to something else. (laughs) Just let it turn to something else, okay? patrolling, Erica encounters a downed Air Force pilot, who reveals himself to be Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Tanner, as played by Powers Booth. It's he who fills Jed and the group in on the current state of the world, now that World War III has officially started. And he notes that they're currently sitting about 40 miles away from what is now known as Free America. West Coast, 
East Coast. Down here is Mexico. First wave of the attack came in disguised as commercial charter flights, same way they did in Afghanistan in 80. Over there were crack airborne outfits. Now they took these passes in the Rockies. So that's what hit Calumet? I guess so. They coordinated with selective nuke strikes, and the missiles were a hell of a lot more accurate than we thought. They took out the silos here in the Dakotas, key points of communication. Like what? Oh, like Omaha, Washington, Kansas City. Gone? Yeah, that's right. Filtrators came up illegal from Mexico, Cubans mostly. They managed to infiltrate SAC bases in the Midwest, several down in Texas, and wreaked a hell of a lot of hell. I'm here to tell you. They opened up the door down here. And the whole Cuban and Nicaraguan armies come walking right through, roll right up here through the Great Plains. How far did they get? Cheyenne, across to Kansas. We held them at the Rockies and at the Mississippi. Anyway, the Russians reinforced with 60 divisions. Sent three whole army groups across the Bering Strait into Alaska. Cut the pipelines, came across Canada. The link up here in the middle, but we stopped their butt cold. Lines are pretty much stabilized now. What about Europe? I guess they figured uh, twice in one century was enough. They're sitting this one out. I'll accept England. They won't last very long. The Russians need to take us in one piece, and that's why they're here now. That's why they won't use nukes anymore, and we won't either, not on our own soil. The whole damn thing's pretty conventional now. Who knows, maybe next week we'll be sore. What started it? I don't know, two toughest kids on the block, I guess. Sooner or later, they're going to fight. That's simple. Maybe somebody just forgot what it was like. Well, who is on our side? 600 million screaming Chinamen. Well, last I heard, there were a billion screaming Chinamen. There were. Tanner ends up organizing the group and gives them further training, both in weapons and tactics to use against the Soviets, which leads to them successfully attempting larger and bolder raids against the occupying forces. During a trek to the front lines, the group finds themselves turned from observers to participants in a pitched battle between some Soviet tanks and some forces from the United States. And while they are successful in stopping the armor that's rolling by them, Tanner and Aardvark are killed in the exchange. The winter, though, rages on, and more specialized units are brought in to continue the hunt for the Wolverines. Jed and his group do manage to ambush and kill a Spetsnaz unit, and they realize that they've been tracked there with a homing beacon, learning that Daryl has made an unsanctioned trip into town where he was captured, and thus forced by his collaborating father, as played by Lane Smith, at least under the threat of torture, to swallow a device. Enraged, Jed executes the last of the Russian soldiers, while Robert steps in and kills Daryl for his treachery when the rest of the group refused to. Where is it? Where is it? 
God damn it! Where's the bugs? They made me swallow it. Daryl, what have you done? I went into town. And got caught. And we got caught. Why? Because you said we couldn't. You told them where we were, didn't you? You told them. My father turned me in. Oh, God, they didn't think you killed me. You son of a bitch! You want blindfolds? It's violent at the Geneva Convention. I never heard of it. Dog face! I show you how Soviet dies. I've seen it before, pal. This isn't happening. This isn't happening. Jet, let him go! Shut up, Danny! He was one of us! Shut up! He told him where we were! He did. Now get your rifles. No! What did you say? I said no! We're not doing it! Boy, say it to you, our friend. So we not die alone. What's the difference, Jen? Huh? I'll do it. Shut up, Robert! Tony, what's the difference between us and them? Because we live here. As time passes, the group seemingly has a stroke of good luck, ambushing a shipment that ends up being full of fresh fruit. But it's all a ruse for the Soviets to ambush them with helicopter gunships. The group is able to barely repel the aircraft with rocket-propelled grenades, but in the exchange, Robert is killed and Tony is mortally wounded. She requests that Jed just leave her with a grenade to booby-trap her own body when the Russians come, which Jed tearfully agrees to do, and the group later gets to hear the detonation, knowing that the ruse indeed worked. Jed and Matt then insist that Erica and Danny escape over the border into free America, noting that, hey, somebody's gotta survive this. The brothers then launch a suicide mission against the Soviet headquarters in Calumet, both to pull local forces away and help mask Erica and Danny's flight, and for just sheer vengeance. After blowing up numerous buildings and destroying a number of vehicles, Matt is attacked and mortally wounded in the train yards outside by the Soviet colonel Strenkolnikov, as played by William Smith, who Jed ends up gunning down in revenge, but not before taking a final spray of bullets himself. Dying from their wounds, Jed ends up carrying Matt away from the base, encountering Colonel Bella along the way. Disillusioned with the war and actually identifying with the goals as a porter partisan, Bella lets the two freedom fighters go. Jed ends up carrying Matt to the park where they grew up and played together as children, and they sit on a bench holding each other in the cold, reminiscing about better days as they together die. Erica ends up narrating the end of the film noting that she and Danny did make it across the lines to freedom, and that the war did end as all wars do, implying that America has indeed won and survived the conflict. And the area that the group had signed their names has now been turned into a national monument. It's called Partisan Rock, 
and it's adorned with a plaque that simply reads, In the early days of World War III, guerrillas, mostly children, placed the names of their lost upon this rock. They fought here alone and gave up their lives, so that this nation shall not perish from the earth. Credits. Roll. So where do we even begin? Well, let's start with what's good. The acting. I mean, for what you have here, it's a lot of fun. The character actors steal most of the good lines and most of the scenes that they are in. They draw focus away from our main cast of ingenues, but hey, that's just a testament to the acting powers of greats like Ben Johnson and Harry Dean Stanton. But to be fair, that's not to say that the main cast does a bad job. Powers Booth himself here is amazing. But I do wish he was able to have more dialogue. It's the stuff that Booth himself lamented that was left on the cutting room floor for his character. It would have been awesome to see him not so much have that relationship with Erica, but more just show him to be a man who's so tired of fighting and to have mixed feelings about what does it mean to live now in an occupied invaded country. It's a missed opportunity, really. To me, though, it's a lot of the little things this film does. Case in point, I really love the fact that the occupying Russian soldiers, that they're sort of walking around and touring the West, they're enamored with this concept we have of, you know, the great myth of cowboys and Indians in the American West. The soldiers argue amongst themselves as to whether or not a stray arrow that the group left out in the middle of the woods is actually an authentic Native American weapon, or actually just a modern one that you would find in your average sporting goods store. You have the soldiers arguing amongst themselves whether or not it was made from the melted-down swords of Cossack cavalry officers, or if it was made by Native Americans slowly working bone into a high-polished sheen to explain the fact that it looks like it has plastic fletchets as opposed to feathers. Hey, that leads me to another thought, though. This film is interesting as well. Aside from the concept Colonel Bella, the occupiers, the Russians, or at least to the lesser extent the Cubans, who are depicted here, they're extremely extremely one-sided. They're either completely ruthless characters or they're total buffoons. They're not allowed to be anything that is relatable, right? In this way, Milius really draws a line. It's us and them, and the them is not really relatable for the average viewer because it, they want you to focus on the fact that you're supposed to love and respect the Wolverines and root for the destruction of and hate these occupying characters. There's no average, quote, communist in this movie. They're all just of a certain kind. Does that make this film jingoistic? Well, yeah, from a certain standpoint, most certainly. But it wasn't as if the other films of the day, fitting into that Sylvester Stallone, Chuck Norris vibe, if they weren't, I mean, we had other movies going on that were reminding people of the dangers of communism and that glorified blowing up practitioners of communism on the big screen. 
You could make the argument that it was just another advocate for the glorification of violence on behalf of the nation for the day. Oddly enough, at least in early interviews, Milius would tell people that he viewed this film as being exemplified for showing the futility of war, pointing out that these kids are fighting and dying, and they're doing it all just to be remembered as names on the rock at the end of this film, the coda to this whole story. Now, to viewers that watch the film and walk away thinking these people fought and died just to be names on a monument, and that's it, I don't really buy that, especially when you think of the closing quote that the filmmaker chose. Look, I'm not saying that the man was superhuman, we should put extra weight into the words, but if you are tying in a quote from Abraham Lincoln to the end of your film, you can't then turn around and say something is lacking a certain level of gravitas and you're trying to back away from it. You're using a Lincoln quote, you're using it to strengthen the opinion that what people are doing matters. And when it comes to this film being about futility, I honestly think Milius is full of shit. He's talking out of both sides of his mouth. He wants to have it both ways. This is a pro-war film for what it views as being a just conflict. And by the way, even if you don't agree with it, it at least tracks with logic so you can understand it. And that's the difference. You can enjoy something and still not agree with its fundamental being. It can just be enjoyed for being entertainment. You don't have to try to backtrack and throw in a bunch of extra information that says, oh, by the way, this is also an anti-war film. I don't think it is, and it doesn't have to be. Not everything has to be enjoyed by all parties, nor does not everything have to be always to all people. You can make a position on the hill and die there. It's all right. But that begs the question, is this a good movie? Well, from a certain standpoint, no. It's silly, it's ham-fisted, it's overly simplistic in its approach to how it gives this story context and how it shows itself. But the Wolverines are such a great example of red-blooded American patriots. Their efforts are so successful against an occupying force it's hard to say they're not inspiring to their countrymen. And it's hard to believe that they wouldn't keep their fellow people abreast of what's going on, that they wouldn't inspire more of their countrymen to take up arms against these invaders. You know, the way a real insurgency would, especially at this level. The answer to why is that movie not more, I don't know, realistic? Well, here's the thing, it's a movie. And more to the point, it's a B-movie, and a fantastic one at that. But it's a B-movie that is trying to garb itself in the guise of some A-list fare. That doesn't mean that the plot, from a certain point of view, doesn't make sense. But it's a lot of fun, and it's over the top. And it allows us to forgive the sins of not being a, quote, good film, and understanding that it's trying to transcend what it is and exist in, quote, great territory, especially as to how it tickles the inner Neanderthal part of our very beings, those parts of ourselves that just like watching a story where the good guys overcome adversity and, quote, win.
What's happening? What's happening? He's shooting at everybody. Shooting at We're going to the mountains. We're getting out of here. Who are they in here as you can tell? I heard some of them speaking Spanish, Mr. Morris. Did you see any of them? With Spain? With you. Get in there and get sleeping bags and food right now. Come on. Hurry up, guys. Let's move it. Take the dry stuff. Don't mess around with it. Get the dehydration. You got it, yeah. 308. Somebody get some lanterns. 38 special. Grab some toilet. Get that 12K. Ain't gonna use no leaves. Grab the toilet. I'm gonna get you out of that. has gone on to give many an interview on this film, explaining how the movie put him in director jail and how these peaceniks in Hollywood with their liberal agendas were all going against him this entire way, and how he had to just battle to make this film. I'm not going to call the man a liar, but I think it's just, well, it's Milius's way to have fun and to make things consistently about the man versus the system, in this case himself versus Hollywood. Honestly, I found that Red Dawn, while as a film its politics on paper are rather antithetical to my own, it's nothing more than this rip-roaring good time. Because it's a cartoon of a picture. You're not supposed to take this seriously. It's not real. It's fiction. And the America portrayed in it, well, that's not real either, as well as none of the other nations that are involved. They're all just caricatures of themselves. Nothing that has anything that would make a rational person take it seriously. And thus that negates the dangerous threat that Milius makes both himself and the movie out to be against the system. Honestly, I've met diehard Stone Age conservatives as well as liberal hippie pinkos who both love this film with equal measure. And that's because it's frivolous mind candy that can be enjoyed by all parties. To date, and honestly, if you're one of these people, please hit me up. I'd love to know. But listeners, if you're a person out there who doesn't enjoy this movie, I would truly be interested in you letting me know why. But again, to date, I don't think I've met anybody who actually hates this film. I've met people who haven't seen it, I've met people that are indifferent to it, and I've met others that think it's just okay. But most people seem to come at Red Dawn with a smile, a chuckle, and then they throw a fist and they shout Wolverines when you bring it up. And it's part of the culture that we have and that we've shared together.
So I can hear you out there. Chris, how was the film received? Well, when it comes to Red Dawn, it was a bit of a mixed bag. Released into theaters on August 10th, 1984, Red Dawn experienced a critical response that was, uh, really at best, fair to middling. At worst, it had protest groups forming, both against the perceived jingoism against the communists, as well as you had groups of World War II veterans who were taking umbrage with the way the movie was being advertised. You see, they had this whole campaign that was put out to promote the film that noted that, quote, to this day, no foreign power has ever occupied American soil, which led to complaints against MGM not taking into account that when the Japanese did go to war with us in World War II, they invaded the Aleutian Islands and they did occupy them. Milius and MGM, for their parts, did apologize to the latter against their complaints, but what was done was done. As it came to reviews, Alan Karp of Box Office Magazine noted that the story itself starts off really strong for this film, but begins to fall apart. Noting that Milius overdoses the audience with his macho humor and with some of his moralistic inanities. Some of the dialogue, he said, was so absurd that preview audiences were left howling in disbelief. I have a hard time picturing that myself. Now, Larry Rubenstein of Cineast Magazine noted that the film still does have some strange plot holes in a story, suggesting that, well, hey, why doesn't the group exit and make their way to free America during those multiple chances that they have while they're standing right there looking at it on the border? They could go and resupply. They could go and find extra help to take the fight back to their homeland. They could have basically rallied, gotten more troops, and then come back to free the town. Or at the very least, what was the point of introducing Radio Free America messages over the radio when it's clear that this group is not one that is sharing their information with the American military who is broadcasting messages, quote, to people like them. Now, the New York Times was rather split on the parts of the film that it found odd. They had both of their in-house reviewers commenting on it. Vincent Canby, in his review, acknowledged that the entertainment side of things at least this film was good. He praised Ron O'Neill for his performance, and he said you could do worse. But he faulted Milius on his story structure, noting that when it comes to the logic of explaining how this is suddenly just a conventional war film, he comments that Milius, his thinking was so small and so wishful that it amounts to a huge distortion of possibilities as well as the facts as to how a war like this would actually be conducted. His counterpart at the New York Times, Janet Maslin, was seemingly even less impressed, commenting that the on-screen jingoism that is seen here is, well, kind of disturbing. To any sniveling lily-livers who suppose that John Milius has already reached the pinnacle of movie-making machismo, here is a warning. Mr. Milius's Red Dawn is more rip-roaring than anything he has ever done before. Here is Mr. Milius at his most alarming, delivering a rooting, tooting scenario for all of World War III. The Hollywood Reporter put it most succinctly. Reaction to MGM United Artists released Red Dawn 
on the home soil invasion that is repelled by teenage gorillas is nonetheless proving to be a resounding yet. It packs plenty of rabble-rousing ammunition, but its sloppy execution is unlikely to win any badges for marksmanship. With feedback like that, one would think that the box office was rather unkind to Red Dawn. But, for the time, audiences, well, they were more than willing to take in some crazy violence and some popcorn movie action fun. Red Dawn would go on to earn $38 million at the box office. Not a mega hit by any stretch, but certainly enough to qualify to being one of the 20 highest grossing films of that year. The film continued to have a cult following and cultural legacy that would carry on in the ensuing decades. Many a conservative publication has extolled the virtues of its story, and Milius, as a well-known advocate for both his admiration of men like Teddy Roosevelt and conservative values, would often play up it was, hey, me as a conservative man in Hollywood against the rest of these educated elitists. And he would crow about it to any and all publications who would give him the platform. Again, I don't know if I quite buy that. I mean, really. Red Dawn was liked by a lot of people, and you didn't have to appreciate it from only the, quote, conservative point of view to think it was a decent film. It's fiction. Keep it at that. But Red Dawn has gone on to be featured in other forms of media, as well as having video games made. See, the love of this film has been covered on shows like Scrubs, and it's been parodied on shows like South Park. Milius himself recycled the entire concept of Red Dawn into a video game that, instead of calling it Red Dawn the game, he decided to update it and make it for a more modern time. Thus, he helped craft what would become Homefront, the game in 2011 that was released on multiple platforms. In the later aughts, MGM announced that it was going to seek to remake the film, and it went about securing a cast and a director to make that all happen. The film would end up being directed by stuntman-turned-director Dan Bradley, and it then cast a pre-Thor Chris Helmsworth. It was initially supposed to be released in 2010, but MGM underwent financial issues and it had a complete restructuring, one that caused the film to sit in the can on the shelf for an additional two years before it was eventually released in 2012 with another slight overhaul to its story being made in post-production. You see, China was recast as being the film's main villain and occupying power within the U.S., as the USSR was long gone. But it suddenly struck some of the people at MGM that, hey, perhaps we should not demonize China, noting that it was both not financially nor politically wise to keep the nation from seeing the film. Thus, in the last moments, the film was changed. It had its villains recast as being the powers of North Korea invading the United States. Still, of course, with Russian backing, but they say that part a lot softer. It was released without a ton of fanfare, and honestly, the remake itself was a financial disappointment. Now, as a film, I'm not going to tell you it's awful, it's okay, but it's a remake, I would argue, that was not needed. Red Dawn is very much a time and place kind of movie to me. 
It exists in a bubble that lets it be a very fun bit of 80s goofiness, but when you try to update it, it just makes it for, well, kind of a strange offering. On the whole, I'll say this. When it comes to Red Dawn, I can't tell you that this is a film that's going to change your life, or that it's going to be something that's going to continue to age well like a fine wine. It has its problems. But Red Dawn itself is a cultural touchstone. It's a pop cultural bauble that is from a rather strange time in the United States history. You have a bit of Cold War action propaganda that managed to burn its way into our national consciousness, and it's left us with this weird, fun, and entertaining bit of cinema that we can still enjoy today. And I think most people would be better off taking the time to see it. That's my pitch. Take it or leave it. It's up to you. The version of Red Dawn screened here at the LSCE was the 2012 Blu-ray. Now, I have to tell you, much like the Evil Dead films, Red Dawn has had multiple versions and re-releases both on DVD and Blu-ray, with minimal differences between those versions, mostly its cover art. This one comes with trailers, a making-of featurette series, and interviews with the cast. And all of that could be yours for the low price of $12.99 on Amazon.com, which gives you the multi-format DVD-Blu-ray combo. Something I would argue which is a steal for what you get here. Now, remember folks, we don't get anything here at the LSCE for actually telling you where you buy your movies from. We just feel that in this day and age, it's important to still continue to support physical media so that these fine companies who own the rights to these marvelous movies will keep releasing the content that we all know and love. And at the end of the day, isn't that really what you want? More of the stuff that you love? Besides, Red Dawn is such a goofy bit of a good time, with its over-the-top action and cartoonish acting, how can you not enjoy having such a thing as a copy of your own? So what are you waiting for? Get out there, get yourself a copy of Red Dawn today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. I do hope you've enjoyed Acceptable in the 80s. Next month is going to see us usher in October with a new cinematic theme that we're calling Tastes Like Chicken. So we hope you're going to join us then. Still can't get enough of having old Chris in your ears? Hey, I understand. Well, I was lucky enough to have sat down with the good, amazing folks of the Video Rama podcast, and we got to discuss a really marvelous 80s, reality-bending, Lovecraft-inspired horror offering that is from beyond. That should be posted mid-week here, and that's certain to hopefully entertain and inspire. So be on the lookout for that. We will be posting a link to it. If you like what we're doing here, that would be the LSCE, Doxins, and myself, please give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts and hit that subscribe button. Or hey, just do that wherever you're listening to us on. 
You want to leave us a fun review? Hell, I'll read it here and give you a shout-out on the show. Just consider it my way of saying thank you for recognizing the love that we have for cinema. Please swing by, check out our website, lscep.com, where we have articles, episode links, and comics for you to peruse. I'm proud to announce that we've been added to Amazon Music, so if you have an account, simply say, Hey Alexa, play I Saw It on Linden Street today. We're also featured on Podchaser. That's a podcast database for listeners and creators alike. Find us there. Give us a follow and a review if you could, please. And hey, feel free to do that to any of the lists that we're a part of to give us a boost in those rankings. The more reviews we get, the increased likes we get, that affects those marvelous algorithms that makes us more searchable. And then we get to share more of these films with more people. And you want that, don't you? Of course you do. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things, please email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. If you'd like to be even more personable or you wish to contribute a segment to the sidecar, please send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So, until next time, please take care out there. Wash your hands, wear a mask, stay healthy. And remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night.